Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Our gospel reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. And now, O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The trouble with the church is it's too worldly. Too many of its members drink or violate the Sabbath or don't believe in the Bible. Or it's too worldly. It's guilty of the same discrimination as any other organization or club, and its members think they're better than everyone else. The trouble with the church is the preacher's sermons are boring. They're nothing but vague, unrealistic generalities which give me no help in my day-to-day -day living. Or the preacher's sermons meddle too much in matters that are none of her business. The problem with the church is it's compromising the truth of the gospel with all of this ecumenical dialogue. Or it's too narrow-minded and intolerant. Every denomination thinks that it has a monopoly on the truth. It's too inclusive. As long as you make a pledge of financial support, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. It's too exclusive. If you don't wear the right clothes or have the right political views, you're not welcome. It's too old-fashioned and conservative. It's too modernistic and liberal. Too much hellfire and damnation. Not enough hellfire and damnation. Too chummy, too cold, too intellectual, too superficial. The point is, almost everyone, whether they attend or not, has some beef about the church. As we heard in the reading from Exodus today, God has always intended for his people to be at least somewhat of a structured and orderly unit. 
People are not meant to live an individualistic faith life. Within that structure in Exodus, for example, there were leaders, but the leaders were not the be-all and end-all. Others played a vital role in supporting the leadership and serving the entire body. And that's what the church is today. Not a building, as beautiful as it is, but a body. It's a body of believers. The church, of course, is not the physical structure. It's you and it's me. Wherever we go, the church goes with us. And as much as we may mutter and gripe about it, the church is the body of Christ. And so we must love it. Everybody these days is saying that the church is in trouble. Declining attendance, fewer young people, struggles to remain financially viable, too much work and too few volunteers. Do any of these things sound familiar to you at all? I see some nods out there. People point to these as the main problems facing the church today. If you ask me, though, these are not the real problems, but symptoms of a much deeper and more serious question that is plaguing almost all denominations of the Christian church. And that question is, how are we to be a relevant and faithful Christian body in an increasingly multi-faith or even secular or even hostile sometimes society. The challenge for the church today, as it has always been, is fundamentally a struggle to keep in balance two different dimensions. One dimension is its particularly Christian identity, that which sets it apart and makes us salt and light in the world, that which makes us different. And the other dimension is relevance to the world around us. I'll explain this, but first a question. What distinguishes Christianity from all other movements, philosophies, or programs? Right? Well, what gives us our identity as Christian is nothing other than Jesus and the Bible. And the Bible, of course, is where we get to know Jesus. That is our only foundation for our identity as a Christian church, Jesus and the Bible. And as we heard in the gospel reading that I read for you a few minutes ago, it's when Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah that Jesus declares the church will be built on him. Peter was the first of a great multitude of people throughout history who would come to confess Jesus as the Savior of the world. But Christianity, of course, also has an important dimension of relevance, and that is, how do we make the particular Christian identity comprehensible to each new generation? How do we continue preaching the gospel and making disciples in our time and context? 
trouble begins in the church when one of these dimensions, identity or relevance, is overemphasized at the expense of the other. For example, when the church gets stuck in the dimension of Christian identity, it can become single-minded in its defense of the revealed scriptural truth and orthodox theology, but ignore the development of an application of that truth for our current context. The result is an inability to dialogue with the world, a kind of fortress mentality that shuts out the world and doesn't equip its members to live in the world and deal with the realities of life in this day and time. And you can probably all bring to mind some churches that fit this description. On the other hand, the danger of overemphasizing the dimension of relevance of the faith at the expense of our identity is found uh, in those churches that are willing to sacrifice or downplay the specifically Christian message in their effort to appeal to the world, right? They want to be relevant, which is good, it's important, but this can come at the expense of the inconvenient truth of the gospel. These churches will lose focus of biblical truth, often allowing the winds of cultural changes and preferences to determine the criteria of truth in the church. One of the signs of a church that is unbalanced on the side of relevance is a lack of respect for authority, for Um, for the tradition, for any kind of authority, since context is the only criteria for truth, then truth is whatever I decide is true for me in this moment and is open to revision depending on my personal circumstances or emotional state. That's the risk of of going too far the other way. In this case, there will no longer be respect for the work of the great theologians of our tradition, for example. And the Bible loses authority for our lives and is considered nothing more than a a quaint book of stories and, and we use what we like and ignore the parts we don't like, right? And sadly, in many churches that err on the side of relevance, there will no longer even be respect for the authority of Jesus. Jesus becomes my buddy, right? My comforter there when I need him and tucked on a shelf when he's inconvenient, but in this case not the Lord of my life who rules all the spheres of my existence. So what does it mean then to be a particularly Christian and relevant church in the 21st century? Well, let's think about what the church actually is. One colleague of mine defines the church in this way. He says, the church is a community of people called out of the world by Jesus to follow him and to be his people. Right? Again, the church is a community of people called out of the world by Jesus to follow him and to be his people. I think this is a solid definition I think it's also fitting to mention that the Protestant reformers from whom we in our faith tradition are descended determined that there were three signs that you could look for 
in a church to define, to determine if it is a truly Christian community. So the first sign that the Reformers identified uh, of the true Christian church is that it faithfully proclaims the word of God. It faithfully proclaims the word of God. A church where Jesus is not the absolute authority has lost its Christian identity. Throughout history, the church has had its ups and and downs. It has grown and, and it has diminished. I'm sure that in the 110 plus years, this congregation has had its own ups and downs. But historically, church renewal and rejuvenation and and renewed energy has always been sparked by a radical return to the source of our Christian identity, Jesus and the Bible. So you can think of the great revivals um, in history or, or even the Protestant Reformation itself. It's that church returning to Jesus and the Bible. Without Jesus and the Bible, we are just any other political, social, or activist group. So one of the signs of the true church is faithfulness to proclaiming God's word. The second sign of the true church, identified by the reformers, is what we did one something we did today, faithful and responsible administration of the sacraments. So the word, faithfully proclaiming the word of God and faithful, faithfully and responsibly administering the sacraments. If a group, for example, celebrates what they call communion, but their focus in doing so is not on the saving death and resurrection of Jesus and the hope we have for his return, then it's not a Christian sacrament. Maybe some other ritual, but but it needs to be focused on Jesus to be a Christian sacrament. The same is true of baptism. A group who celebrates a water ritual but does not do so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is just giving a poor child a cold shower, (laughs) a shower with cold water, right? For sacraments to be Christian, they must be rooted in our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in the Lutheran wing of the Protestant Reformation, with regards to the signs of the true church, they left things there. Word and sacrament, that was what mattered. But the Presbyterians, which is one of our founding churches in the United Church of Canada, added one more sign, and that is church discipline. (laughs) Oh, those Calvinists. (laughs) The Calvinists recalled the Apostle Paul's emphasis on church discipline, that one of the faithful functions of the church is to call people to live out their faith in Christian discipleship. So the church has a responsibility to shape the lives and the discipleship and the way people go out into the world and live their lives. So that, for the, for the Presbyterians, was a third dimension. Church discipline is administered in love and according to biblical standards, but it is a deeper love, one that is willing to take the risk of confronting a sister or brother who is damaging their life or disgracing the name of Jesus through their behavior or through their attitudes. The purpose of Christian discipline, according to the Calvinists, is never, ever to shame or punish 
but to restore a brother or sister to fullness of life and dignity. So that's our task as members of the Christian church, to make disciples by interpreting the particularly Christian message for each generation through the faithful proclamation of the word and the responsible administration of the sacraments and by encouraging each other in lives of faithful discipleship. And while no church is perfect, despite what my sermon title may be, (laughs) no church is perfect and no church ever carries out that task perfectly all the time, the church and all of its members are to be loved generously and selflessly, just as Jesus loved his church and gave his life for her. I think this poem sums it up nicely. An anonymous poet wrote, I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church whose elders always speak and none is proud and all are meek, Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. Amen.